0: Um, and what I think beyond just my dad's antics that evening, uh, what made it so special was the experience of extended family. It was multi-generations. Some were blood connection, and some were not, and tons and tons of joy, and that's what made it so special. Today, we'll be talking about spiritual extended family. As I mentioned, we're in the series of, of Mark, and we are in the life and mission of Jesus, and uh, here at Serve, Jesus is pretty central for us. Uh, you, We do believe that people are at different places in their spiritual journey and traveling at different paces, and so we as a church love to make space for that so that people can navigate where they are at and that they can experience community and belonging regardless of where they're at for us, Jesus is central. And so in, what better way to explore his life together than walking through it? So if you've got a Bible, there's some of the backs of the pews. We have words on the screen as well. We are in Mark chapter three. And uh, last week we saw Jesus perform a miracle on the Sabbath, healed a guy's hand. And uh, some of the religious teachers of the day did not like that. Uh, they felt it was work. They felt it was breaking uh, what was really their man-made laws. Um, and so the, he got some backlash. He heals a person who gets backlash. Some groups began to conspire to kill him. So it kind of makes sense when we read this next, that Jesus withdrew with his disciples. Like, good life decision, right? People are after your life, he withdraws. And so they go to the lake. They go to the lake of Galilee, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from the from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd... He told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone about him. Okay, so what we're going to examine this morning are kind of some circles of Jesus' relationship. So we like to do visuals around here every once in a while. So we're going to pull this bad boy in and we are going to examine some of those. And the first one we're going to see here is what is simply called the crowd. All right, we have the crowd, okay? So crowd is rocking with Jesus. Now, uh, many of us might think, what comes to mind when we think of crowd, uh, at least in this part of the country, we think of maybe chiefs Nation. Right? Anybody thinking that we are getting ready for football season, and uh, this might come to mind because we are are known around the country as being one of, if not the loudest uh, NFL stadium in the country. We are known to be these die-hard, crazy fans. And what's a terrible thing as a sports fan for me is that I have not yet been in person for Chiefs Nation at a Chiefs game in five years now. So I need to fix that. So I'm just like, there's my sin. I will own it, and I will get to a Chiefs game sometime soon. Probably not this season. We're about to have a maybe. So I would like to believe it's this season, but it's probably not. And uh, so anyways, we know that crowds are willing to come from near and far, right? People will come for the tailgate. They will come for the experience of being a part of such a boisterous crowd, right? Well, I'm going to say something crazy, but the crowd of Jesus's day was more intense than we are let me show you a little map here it says the crowd has come from Judea from Jerusalem from Idumea and regions across the Jordan Tyre and Sidon alright so Lake of Galilee is that small little lake at the top or the Sea of Galilee is named both Um, and people would travel distances of 40 or 50 miles that would be Tyre and Sidon in the very upper left-hand corner 40 or 50 miles there's no cars All right this is walking so that's a two to three day trip depending on how fast you go Uh, down in the south middle part of that map is Jerusalem and Judea. Jerusalem is about 70 miles, and Judea, depending on where in Judea, is roughly 80-ish miles. And so that's more like a four- or five-day trip to see Jesus. And then Idumea is the very south, which is roughly 120 miles, a good 8- to 10-day journey, all right? So we've got a serious crowd, And they are hungry, they are excited, they are pursuing Jesus. And why? Because we see from this passage, they're getting freedom. They've heard of other crowds and they're experiencing the same. It says he had healed many. so Those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. When people came into contact with Jesus, they started to experience freedom. They started to experience healing. Jesus claims he was bringing a kingdom uh, to this earth, that it was crashing onto this earth. And in his miracles and in his teachings and in his healings, these are tangible embodiments of that kingdom crashing onto a very broken world. And people are experiencing that, right? And so what do we see in Jesus' interactions here with the crowd? There's a very significant portion of Jesus' relationships. We see that he loved them, that he served them, that he cared about them, that he met their needs, that he is physically present with them and among them. He even allowed them to flood him with his presence to the point that he's making like plan B, right? Like, hey, disciples, get me a boat because I'm going to back up into this lake and if they keep coming in, I'm going to jump in that boat and teach them, right? Like he is wanting to reach them, wanting to care for them, and yet already uh, kind of making space for how they might mob him. All right. So we see a really hungry, loving, caring, pursuing crowd that is hungry for more of Jesus. Now, following lots of healings, we're gonna see another group of relationships here as the narrative flows on. We see lots of healings. We see hours of public ministry. It's dinner time. People leave, disciples go to bed, and Jesus still has business. Uh, Late this evening, we know from Luke's gospel, Jesus stays up all night. And then we read here in verse 13, in the morning, Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to those to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Verse 16, these are the twelve that he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alpha- Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, most of us in the room have probably heard some form of this story. We're familiar with the fact that Jesus invited twelve people into his life, known as the Twelve Disciples. So yes, that is his his inner core, right? Twelve disciples. This is his inner core of his relationships. And uh, they had a very special place in his life and mission, right? Uh, He says here that he invited them to be with him And then he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. To be with him, to use our language here at Serve, we talk about an upward connection with the Father, inward with each other, and out on mission together. Jesus had his in. Those were his 12. There were others as well, but that was his deepest form of his inward connection with others, right? And so they are called to know him deeply and to be known by him deeply. These 12, though, were not just hanging out with him, they had a mission. He says here it's to be sent out to preach and teach and to heal and to cast out demons. That's an interesting job description. I don't know if anyone's looking for a job, but if this were the job description, that would be a real, like, kind of head-spinning moment. Like, what? And it's a big deal to know that. That Jesus invited them in and that he would train them to do exactly what he was doing right they have a, a crowd issue because people are getting healing and freedom demons were coming out of him and he's saying here i'm going to teach you guys to do the same thing as me that must have been wild so what we see here in this in these disciples is they're called in but they're always doing this okay so there's this purpose of an outward movement back in and through these different circles of relationships all right so Let me make sure you also know this, that if you think these 12 were super holy or super special, they weren't, okay? They were a ragtag team of messes. All right. Some of them were uh, fishermen, common day people. Probably made a good living, uh, but were also not smart enough to be a part of the religious elite or teachers of the day. Right? They missed the cut. So there's the them. One we saw a couple of weeks ago is a deceitful tax collector named Matthew, um, and then another is a zealot. If you don't know what a zealot was at the time, it means he probably had a long jagged knife on the side of his leg. And zealots at the time were actually hoping to uh, overthrow Rome's uh, with a physical, you know, overthrow. So he He was kind of ready to throw down at any time and, you know, shank a Roman soldier if he could get away with it, that sort of thing, all right? That's Simon the Zealot, and then it states here very clearly that Judas Iscariot would betray Jesus to death. So that's his 12, some of them at least, and uh, if you thought there was a high moral qualification for this team, you, you got that one wrong, okay? So he chose very, very ordinary people, and he made them Extraordinary. Uh, 11 of these 12 w- would be a part of totally turning the world upside down with the good news of Jesus. And here we are. Obviously, whatever Jesus did in his training, we're here 7,000, more than 7,000 miles away, and 2,000 years later. So, whatever he did, it worked. Okay, so Jesus ministers to the crowd, he engages them, he invites the 12 disciples out of that crowd, and here's where we're going to add a lens, add a layer to the crowd. Look at as the narrative continues, we're just examining his relationships, and this is going to tie together, so stick with me. Verse 20, it says, then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered. So that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Man, people need to learn like physical space with Jesus. I don't know what's going on there. But then verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said he is out of his mind. And so now we're going to see a different lens on the crowd. Right, the first one seems like Chiefs Nation, like everybody's there, they love Jesus, like Chiefs, right? I mean, like they're after him, right? It seems all good and frills, but this crowd is going to have a lot more flavor. And one of the subsets of this crowd, in this case, was Jesus's nuclear family, right? His immediate family family is a part of this crowd, and if you didn't catch it, they think he's crazy, all right? Uh, And verse 20 is the crowd itself. Somebody from the crowd, verse 21 is actually the the family not there yet. So somebody from the crowd goes, dude, Jesus is nearby, so I don't know if if their family was in town. I don't know if this is in his hometown or around it, but anyway, somebody goes and gets their family and says, hey, there's a crowd forming, and uh, they're not stoked about this, right? Uh, They are having some challenges, uh, because they're questioning whether Jesus is worthy of this large crowd coming around him. Now, from one lens, maybe you can understand where they are. Maybe it's, maybe it's just me, but hopefully you could too. Uh, what would it take for you to believe if you were the sibling of Jesus who, who shows up as the Messiah, right? Like, what would it take if you were Jesus' sibling to actually believe that, or at minimum to believe that he was worthy of a crowd kind of gathering around him? I, at least, can resonate with that. And the reason why, you may not know this about me, but my brother's kind of a big deal, Okay. My brother's kind of a big deal. He is a professional dodgeball player. Okay. Now, when I say professional, I guess I have to say semi-professional. Uh, the sport is not large enough for him to actually take like a full-time salary, but they have tournaments and he wins money, so that goes to semi-professional. Now, just in case you don't believe me, you, let's take a look at the screens right now. Just check them out. So I have. Athletic background, And so there's this portion of me that's slightly jealous, like slightly jealous that I am not that good, okay? Uh, he is pretty awesome. And uh, yes, so at times, he's got some crowds in and around him. So I at least, maybe you can't, but I at least can resonate with maybe the siblings of Jesus going like, hold up, we got to ring that guy back in, okay? They might react as, as it says here in verse 20 and 21, uh, that they need to fix the situation, right? Uh, and this is an honor-shame culture. What we'll we'll dive into that in a moment. So they are worried that Jesus might bring shame upon their family, okay? So as it's rolling along, we see another part of this crowd. Verse 22, it says, The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem 70 miles said he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So they're opposing him. They have come to oppose. Verse 23, So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. And so what we see here is another subset of the crowd that day, at least. We've got some teachers of the law And yeah, it's kind of a big deal. I mean, again, remember that's a four to five day journey that these people came to uh, kind of lob grenades at him, if you will. And they think not only is he nuts like his family thinks, but they think he is actually even possessed. Possessed right? So they've probably either seen some of the miracles, they've certainly heard it, they've been a part of some prior crowds, uh, and and they believe, they've even seen some of those demons leave, and they're trying to accuse him, well, that's only because he has demonic power over his own demons and is unleashing them, right? Like, that's their claim. And so Jesus just tries to set their logic straight, like, no, hold up, Satan's not going to cast out Satan, he's not going to work against himself, why would you accuse me of that power when, quite clearly, demons are uh, being set out and people are being released into freedom? He adds on to that and describes his own ministry in a powerful way. He says, in fact, verse 27, no one can enter a strongman's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strongman's house. Fascinatingly, he refers to Satan as a strongman and Jesus coming into that house, tying him up and then plundering. I love the realism of Jesus that recognizes that we live in a very broken and hurting world. That's what Jesus is articulating there. Evil is real, evil is wrecking havoc on people. And when my kingdom breaks in, it looks like this, tying up his hands, throwing him in his own home and plundering everything. Because my kingdom brings beauty and justice and love and freedom. He is freeing people with his presence and his power. And so he turns over the table of their logic And he concludes with this final statement, verse 28. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now, it's a very hard statement. It's challenging. Many people have pondered what it means, and rightfully so. Uh, one line of thinking is the unpardonable sin against the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit could have only happened at Jesus' time, right? That as they name his spirit as one that is uh, demonic is what they're claiming, and he's saying, no, that's wrong, obviously, and the holy it's the Holy Spirit, right? So some line of thought says, hey, that could have only happened in Jesus' day as they're wrongly naming the Holy Spirit the devil. Others still wonder, though, is is this a sin we can commit here today? And in short, I just simply want to draw from J.D. Greer. I think it's an important question. Uh, Summit Church from Raleigh. He simply says, Blasphemy against the Spirit is any hardened and consistent stance against God. We all have moments. We will have even sustained periods of our lives when we defy God. But there may come a point in a person's life when that becomes an unyielding defiance against God and he or she refuses to let the Spirit speak. At that point, God finally says, you want to do this on your own? You want me out of your life? Okay. Or simply to put it another way, the only unpardonable sin is refusing to let God pardon you. The Bible commands us all to repent. Simply says, the writer of Hebrews says, if you hear his voice today, obey, right? The entire Bible, there's never a time when a person turns to God with repentance, desiring forgiveness and is refused. It just doesn't happen. And and so Jesus won't refuse your desire to repent to come back to him, okay? So I I think that we should have confidence as you figure out where you are with Jesus of Nazareth uh, that Jesus pronounces forgiveness over all sins. Uh, And and it's really only that consistent uh, defiance against him that, that would be a problem. All right, so before we get too far, I wanna make sure we're seeing a little bit more of these lenses. The crowd means our spiritual spectrum, okay? So it's made up of people with antagonism, Right? Opposition, and it goes all the way to devotion right? The crowd is is embodied. All sorts of personalities are part of the crowd. And it's really important to know that at times we're going to see Jesus lots in the gospel of Mark interacting with the crowd. The crowd can be fickle, right? It can be very applauding and, and, and adoring Jesus in one moment and then turning on him the next. Oftentimes the crowd is very anonymous. And so we want to make sure we're getting this different understanding because Jesus has a purpose and a mission that he's going to really bring us to a point of a climax right now in this story. What he's moving towards is, is this remember the family hearing of Jesus being in town. Well, look what they do next. Verse thirty-one. Then Jesus's mother and brothers arrived. And so it's navigating from crowd to intimate disciple to this family interaction here. And and Jesus knocked down the first opposition, right? He talks about Satan and, and how he's not divided. And now he's got to deal with nuclear family. And what we need to do is, again, remember that this is honor and shame culture, very foreign to us as Western. One of the biggest importances of honor and shame is anything you do does not just reflect on you, it reflects on your family. Okay? So your marriage decisions, your career, your friends, any way you speak and act, you do not just think like, hey, how, what's this for my life? That's what we're told in the West. Uh, but most of the world interacts out of honor. I'm like, hold up, I reflect on my family as a whole. Right? There's a very communal understanding here. And so the honor of Jesus' family is online. Right? Like that's what's, when they come, this is a big deal. And so we need to see that. So it says, Jesus' mothers and brothers arrive standing outside the house, they sent someone in to call him. Again, not wanting to bring shame on themselves. They would never just rush into that house and have this, you know, face-to-face interaction with Jesus. That would bring shame upon the whole family, right? So they send a messenger, right? Someone go in. We need to talk to him. They're hoping that Jesus will leave the home and then be corrected privately, right? So that's what they're hoping to do in the situation. Verse 32, A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so we see the final circle that we're trying to explore. And this is really where we want to camp today, is this, family. We want to camp on family. Is there anything more sensitive, more powerful, are more formative than family. You know, months back here at Serve, we had a couple uh, marriage and family therapists come in and uh, talk to us about family of origin, uh, Scott Kahneman and Jewel Anderson. And they spoke about the importance of family of origin, which is mom, dad, and siblings, right? And according to them, and according to large swaths of the psychological field, uh, for better or for worse, the most formative shaping of the way that we view and interact in the world is from our family of origin Uh, we are not doomed and we are not destined in any direction okay so the parts of our family that we can learn to analyze we can actually learn to analyze those dysfunctions and learn to uh, kind of walk out of them move our lives away from them uh, if there are things we wish to break away from Uh, and there are also wonderful things about our family of origin that we can continue to affirm and even more fully live into okay so we're not destined or doomed in any way but we should all be hopefully we can recognize man like I am quite like my parents, or there's a family culture that, that shapes me and forms me in some very powerful way. So Jesus is on a sensitive platform, right? Is a sensitive platform that he's speaking from. And I wanna make sure you don't miss it. This is crucial to the whole morning, okay? This is one of the meta-narratives, the overarching plans of God, is that Jesus looks around and asks the rhetorical question of rhetorical question, who is my mother and brothers? He seizes the moment to, to blow the minds of his listeners, and he looks around at the circle and says, here, here are my mother and brothers, those who listen and do God's will. And uh, this is one of those mic drop moments for Jesus. There's lots of them in his ministry and life. Uh, There's probably some gasps from the crowd in this moment. Uh, At first glance, you might even think he's shaming his family. You might think he's dissociating from them. You might even wonder and ask, man, is Jesus breaking one of the Ten Commandments, the fifth commandment, to honor one's mother and father? That would be an egregious sin. But What if? What if Jesus was doing something so radical, so profound, so countercultural, that rather than shaming his mom and his brothers, what he's doing is actually bringing honor both to them and also bringing honor to this crowd at the same time? What if in this statement, Jesus is moving the crowd out of the nameless autonomy that they generally are spoken of in the scriptures, instead inviting them to the most intimate table and close association with him outside of his relationship with his heavenly father and Holy Spirit. What I believe Jesus is doing is revealing the Father's overarching will, His sovereign design for humankind. It's this big idea that Jesus wants people to actually step out of the crowd, move into a lifelong learning apprenticeship with Him, and to become a spiritual extended family forevermore. That is the infinite plan of God, and you're invited into that. And this eternal plan, which is dreamed up by him, these type of family relationships actually supersede our blood relationships. Jesus says, you can join my family. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That would have brought this crowd great honor, like great honor to be considered as highly as Jesus considered his mom, Mary. So, it should also bring us quite a bit of honor as well. It has brought honor to all of those down the centuries who have begun to uh, respond to Jesus. Uh, because let me tell you, of course, there are few moments as joyful as uh, witnessing or giving birth to a child right the moments of both my boys uh, are pretty amazing and my second one I really was wondering like am i going to experience the same amount of joy as when luke was born and man absolutely and in two more months or so god willing uh, we're going to meet our third kiddo i know we already have a third kiddo she lives in uh, chris's womb right now but there's obviously a game changer when that baby is born into the world and begins breathing air right jesus is saying here let's let's birth spiritual babies right that is happening I'm inviting you into my family. He looks at this nameless clou- crowd, some who oppose him, some who are intrigued, some who have been healed, some who are, are there to, to cast stones against him, some who are devoted, and he sees potential family members. Like that's what Jesus is doing here. And he tells them the pathway forward. It's whoever does the will of God is considered family. But I wonder if as that honor sunk in, uh, it also caused a bit of anxiety, right? Who, who does God's will? Uh, like sometimes, is it part of the times, on the weekends? Is it with the certain people I like where, hey, man, I really like to treat them well. Maybe I can do God's will in their life. Uh, I've got some holy moments, you know what I mean? But all the time, like, what does it mean to, to do God's will? Well, if we rightly square this statement, we should see how quickly we fall short of that, Right? <laughs> like. No, Jesus means completely. We should see that although Jesus is truly inviting the whole crowd through uh, people of centuries and even to us here today, the pathway of joining his family can't be done on our own, that it can only take place in and through him. Uh, at a very different scenario, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in, in the Gospel of John saying this, that gives us insight to how we can only do this through Christ. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. Like, that's the gospel. That's the hope of Jesus in placing our hope and our trust in him that only he saw everything the Father was doing and did it, right? That he was perfectly obedient and that our position is to simply learn how to honor the Son so that we, in essence, are ending up honoring the Father because of Jesus, And so if you hear his word and trust Jesus, you cross from death to life. You enter into the family of God because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so here's how I wanna land the plane this morning is to challenge you in a few ways as we navigate these different relationships that Jesus had and how that might influence us. I wanna make sure, first and foremost, that I offer the opportunity simply to consider, have you surrendered your life to Christ? Like, are you trusting him? Are you following him? Do you know the rabbi of Nazareth? who continues uh, to turn the world upside down? Do you know him and are you following him? Uh, Really, there aren't a lot of barriers other than ourselves. Uh, All you have to do is begin walking with him. Invite him into your life and begin walking in the steps of Jesus, trusting him that he has invited you into his family. And here's the practical, something we we try to help us in practical. All right, so how do I make Jesus Lord? How do I actually walk after him? It's these phrases, listen and obey, right? Jesus saw the Father. He listened to the Father and did what the Father told him. And we try to equip our people with the simple questions of what is God saying to you right now and what are you doing in response? Like, how are you responding to that? And these questions help root us as we take in God's word, as we experience friendship and community with each other, a people who are gonna continue to help each other uh, learn how to walk with Jesus. These central questions, what is God saying to you right now? And how are you responding to him? That's gonna help you learn and continue along the path of doing God's will. So we learn it and we act it together. Now, third is our in-connection. It's evaluating what that looks like, because God's infinite plan for us is to be spiritual family together, is to actually press into that, is to actually have family relationships with each other that are as close or similarly close as our nuclear relationships. This question is just simply, who are you close with outside of your most immediate family? we take Jesus' word seriously, he's inviting us to join his family with him at the head of it, Uh, but that means that we are actual brothers and sisters in relationship with one another. That means our interactions should look quite different and serve. This is actually great news. Like we live in a culture, in a society uh, that is very individualized, very isolated, and often has little relational bandwidth. Is living in spiritual extended family messy? Yes. Yes, it is. Will you have to sacrifice more? Yes, absolutely. Will there be new pains and burdens? Yep. Uh, But as you grow those connections, as you buy into this vision from God, uh, you will you will experience such healing and such beauty in your life that moves us past uh, the narcissism and the compartmentalized culture that we live in. Uh, Most times, when we clean our home, Luke asks the question: Are we having friends over? Um, And he asks that because oftentimes we're cleaning because we are having friends over. He knows that our home is regularly bombarded uh, by our spiritual family. And it is great, great news to us. And it is great news to him and Caleb that they have extended family, that they have rich relationships. So you might be here visiting today. might be a first time. You might be even new-ish to the life of serve. And yes, it takes time. Uh, But maybe you've been traveling for a while and you don't yet have some of those strong relationships outside of your nuclear family. I simply want to encourage you. What does it look like to take someone out for coffee and learn a story? What does it look like to potentially think about joining one of our small groups, again, to give space to actually build relationships? What what might it look like to join a ministry team where, again, you rub shoulders with others and experience deepening, extended spiritual family? There are lots of opportunities to connect. And I want to encourage you. This is God's desire, is that we would be increasing spiritual family together. A final challenge maybe if you're looking to head out into the deeper waters, maybe if you're looking to be challenged beyond where you're currently at, I would wanna encourage you, voice a desire to join one of our discipleship huddles. Uh, Jesus had his inner 12. I actually believe that he called us to model his life after his, that we would have different layers of people who we are investing into at deeper degrees, right? You cannot invest into everyone equally, but man, in those spaces, Jesus chose 12 that lived night and day with him, that really did, that he offered those pearls of wisdom late in the evening around the campfire to, and we all can do the same. We can have people that are investing into us and that we are investing uh, further into, and here at Serve, our huddles, are one of the ways that we want to equip you to actually uh, learn how to multiply your life where you can be a disciple who's learning to listen and obey, and then you are also learning how to invest that into the lives of others so that you might be trained to do what Jesus did, just like he trained his own to do what he did. Uh, I love talking with Larry around here. Many of you know him for all kinds of reasons, Uh, but one of the reasons is that uh, he'll say things like this, man, like this whole spiritual thing is like messing with my mind. I don't know what to do with it. It's like, yeah, Larry, like you're catching it. So step out of the crowd and spiritual and experience spiritual family. Let's pray.